Modern slavery is an appalling evil in our midst, and no man, woman, or child should be left to suffer through this terrible crime. You know, things go wrong, and, and, and worst case, scenario, people die. We're talking about the youngest child being 10 years old, and we know that the age of those that are running for gangs and for county lines, what used to be 10 to 12 year old activity or 12 to 14, is now getting even younger. You know, it's a perfect environment in which to do it. It's safer than doing guns and it's more profitable than doing drugs because drugs are a one-hit wonder. Because the, the Modern Slavery Act has a life sentence, essentially, and they've never used that on anyone. When you hear the word slavery, what springs to mind? Does it cast your mind back to the past? Or perhaps you think of a certain country or place far away? What if I told you modern slavery still happens today in the UK? In fact, almost 30 potential victims were referred to the Home Office every day in the first nine months of 2020. It's not happening behind closed doors either. It's commonplace in industries like beauty, agriculture and construction. Could victims be the person painting your nails in a salon? Or the person washing your car at the car wash? On this investigative journalism podcast series, Uncovered, we'll dig into the hidden stories waiting to be uncovered on your doorstep. I'm Harriet Clugston, Data and Investigations Editor at JPI Media. And I'm Ethan Schoen, an investigative reporter covering the Home Counties area. Over the past three months, our team of eight reporters from across the UK have been looking into the state of modern slavery to find out what is happening to victims and criminals more than five years after the Watershed 2015 Modern Slavery Act was passed by the UK Parliament. What we've uncovered is evidence of an utter failure by the criminal justice system to hold the perpetrators of these horrendous crimes to account and deliver justice to victims. Charities and experts in the sector have also told us of shameful gaps in the system, with a lack of support for vulnerable victims, meaning they're often too terrified or sceptical to cooperate with the police, which hampers efforts to pin down perpetrators. To understand modern slavery in the UK, you need to understand how it's policed and how the law has evolved. In 2015, the UK Parliament passed the landmark Modern Slavery Act, billed as one of the first of its kind in the world. In Northern Ireland, the Human Trafficking and Exploitation Act was also brought in in 2015, while Scotland's Human Trafficking and Exploitation Act followed in 2016. There were various slavery and exploitation offences before this, but what the UK Act and its sister bills did was bring trafficking and slavery offences under one umbrella, with a tougher maximum penalty of life in prison. There were differences in each country's approach, but the general idea was the same. That we will introduce in this Parliament a modern slavery bill, which will include measures to send the strongest possible message to criminals. If you're involved in the disgusting trade in human beings, you will be arrested, prosecuted and locked up. That's what the then Home Secretary, Theresa May, said in Parliament in 2013 about the upcoming bill. But the data since then tells a different story. We analysed the Home Office's figures to see how well the police have tackled modern slavery. And the answer is, not very well. 
Police forces in England and Wales have recorded almost 20,000 offences under the Modern Slavery Act since 2015. That's almost nine for every day of the Act's life. But shockingly, more than 19,000 of those cases were closed without any charges brought against a suspect, with a charge rate of just 4.4%. And between April and September last year, that had fallen to only 2%. Police Scotland has been more successful, but not by a massive margin. There, officers have recorded 475 crimes, but only gathered enough evidence to bring charges in 68 of those, a charge rate of 14%. So, the question we were left asking ourselves was, what on earth is going wrong? Why are our justice systems failing those who need help? According to Tamara Barnett, Director of Operations at the Human Trafficking Foundation, a lack of support for victims and long delays in the system can disincentivise them from working with the police to bring their exploiters down. I caught up with her earlier. In reality, we also know, and the police recognise this as well, there's huge challenges with these cases. They are very, very difficult. And the systems in place don't help police and the criminal justice system either. And there's a real lack of support for survivors um, in the system. There's a short-term support, but there's no long-term support. So a lot of the survivors, um, you know, you know, there's, there's the, the real risk that some of them might actually fall back into exploitation. There's also huge delays in the processes. So actually to get a decision within the government system can take sometimes years. Um, and so often we know with these lengths of time that often whatever case, one slaver or, or even, you know, robbery cases that witnesses and et cetera become, lose faith in the system because it's taking so long. So those real delays can have a real sort of challenging effect as well. There's so many things, there's so many reasons why it's so difficult. And the criminal justice system isn't really a very friendly place for vulnerable survivors. And we also don't really offer survivors very much at the moment. So let's say you have a survivor from uh, Vietnam. If if his family is being threatened back home in in Vietnam, there's very little we can do, inevitably, as the British authority. But also, we can't necessarily say, if you work with us, we'll definitely give you leave to remain to stay in the UK so that you're safe. Um, We don't actually give much in the way of, um, for example, if you're recognised as a refugee, you get five years leave to remain to stay in the UK. Being recognised as a victim of trafficking in the government NRM system doesn't give you anything. So there's anyway a limited impetus really for survivors to work with the authorities um, because they don't get much in return. The systems can't protect them and their families that well anyway. Um, So there's huge challenges um, across the board, unfortunately. Mm. So we're real pickle actually and, and the system sort of is trying to go in the right direction but it's real baby steps um, and there needs to be significant changes I think. Um, often people who um, traffic people for domestic workers they're often very wealthy and very educated. Um, it tends to be sort of very much upper class people who have domestic workers so they actually often might be quite skilled at, at avoiding any any charges and actually be, be better more erudite and able to kind of lay their defense. So what we know for example is they often will do a counterclaim and say, oh, this domestic worker actually stole from me, and this is the real crime. That's why she ran away, not because I've been abusing her for all these years and not paying her. Um, so we know that happens a lot, for example. So actually, you can have a situation where the, the client is willing, the police are willing, um, and then the evidence, the evidence is just very hard to get, and it is a he says, she says situation. Well, in terms of like the wider support, as you've been saying, that a lot of the times victims sort of have a f- fundamental distrust of authority. Um, do you think a sort of lack of support perpetuates that sort of distrust and the unwillingness to engage with police? Yeah, yeah, certainly. Also being let down, you know, particularly if you've been let down, I mean, with the British victims, a lot of them have come across police and social workers earlier on that have failed them. So that, you know, that trust in the system's just gone. 
you know, when you've had those kind of experiences. So, so yeah, and, or if you're a survivor from a foreign national, you know, you, you've come from a country, say Albania, where the authorities are completely corrupt, unfortunately. So, so it's hard to believe the British authorities are different, we, and they are, you know, we, we're broadly pretty uncorrupt as a, a police and justice system. I'm not saying it's perfect, but, but it, it's significantly better than most, most lots of the world. So, so, you know, there often is a mistake, it's a wrong judgment on the foreign national part to not trust they believe corruption. But so I think uh, the support element, though, is is key and 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 the promise of what you can actually get from being, you know, what I need, you know, it's a rational decision. Why will I do this? We've got to give them a rational reason to work with us. And we're not really covering that at the moment. But this is only part of the story. The Home Office figures don't just tell us when police in England and Wales did and did not bring charges. They also tell us the reasons why they didn't. It's clear that the most common reason they closed cases was failure to identify a suspect, but the failures don't stop there. Victims also were not supporting further action in many cases, which echoes what Tamara was saying. But what was more surprising was the fact that there have been almost 2,700 cases closed, even though a suspect had been identified, and the victim supported action. We also wanted to know why there are such huge disparities between police forces. On the one hand, you've got Lancashire Police, where almost 30% of cases see charges brought. But on the other, you've got Hertfordshire, Thames Valley and Sussex, with a charge rate of less than 1%. And in Gwent, in South Wales, police have never brought a single charge. So are some police forces just not taking this as seriously as others? Yeah, I think definitely there is. There are definitely better forces, unfortunately. And, and it really is often about the leadership. There's often a lot of ignorance we find, particularly in certain rural areas, you know, they think they don't have human trafficking. It's a bit like, you know, with drug problem. If you don't lift the lid, you don't have a drug problem. You, you have to look for it to find it. It's not something that sort of pops up um, openly. So, so there's an element that there's still a lot of ignorance, unfortunately, uh, and a lot of forces who don't want to go down that direction or don't even recognise it as a crime. So, I mean, we had that obviously with British girls being sexually exploited and they were treated as, as, as if they were consensual children choosing to, to, to be exploited, even sometimes tortured by these groups of men. And we see that with criminal exploitation of children and young adults. You know, they often get criminalised rather than even being recognised in one slavery case. Real challenge. And we're still seeing that. We're seeing a lot of young people and vulnerable adults being criminalised rather than being recognised as modern, victims of modern-day slavery. I mean, it really is a training issue. But yeah, I, I, I've gone into rooms with police and social workers who have statutory duty as modern slavery access to identify victims, i.e. therefore know about the issue. And I'll ask how many people know about the National Referral Mechanism, which is the government system for support and to refer victims in. And I might get only a few hands sometimes. So, so yeah, you know, you've got a whole room full of people who have no idea. And there is an element of overload, you know, with, with I understand police and social workers, there's so many different types of, of abuse and issues and systems, and it, it is overwhelming. But this is, it's a statutory duty. It's a form of abuse. And unfortunately, there really is no excuse for it. And, and I, it's too easy to work in statutory authorities and get away with it. You know, we've seen so many failings in the sector. I mean, the, the sexual abuse of children obviously is being investigated at the moment by the government. But no, no one's, no heads are going to roll who are really, you know, who are in the police or council. So there's not really any risk. There's a, there's a lack of risk for them. You know, you know, in certain, pro in certain private sector or other jobs, there's actually, there's outcomes, you know, if, if you make a mess. And um, what we really see in this type of work um, that really terrible mistakes are made that can sometimes lead to death, let alone exploitation. Um, and, and, and nothing, you know, there's a serious case review, but everyone stays in their job. So, so there's a lack of incentive. So yeah, it really has to be forced, it has to be mandatory. Otherwise, you know, things go wrong and, and, and worst case scenario, people die. So 
I think there is a problem in our system um, and a bit of an inertia about this kind of thing. That was Tamara from the Human Trafficking Foundation speaking again there. Of course, it's not just the police that have a role to play here. Bringing charges is one thing, but getting a conviction is quite another. So are the prosecutors having more success? Well, the answer to that is no. We analysed data the Ministry of Justice publishes on court outcomes in England and Wales to pin down what's happening in modern slavery cases. That told us that just 344 cases made it to court between 2015 and 2019, a fraction of the cases the police actually charged somebody over. Of those, only 74 saw someone convicted. So in four out of five cases, the Crown Prosecution Service loses. The punishments that were handed out in the successful cases also don't seem to fit the crime, given what we know about the horrible ways people are exploited. Twelve people actually walked free from court with nothing more than a fine or a suspended sentence. And the average time behind bars for those sent to prison? That was only a little more than five years. A far cry from the life sentence the Modern Slavery Act introduced. It's a similar case in Scotland, where only 12 cases have made it to court. We had to ask the Scottish Government for the figures under the Freedom of Information Act, as they don't publish court data openly. They told us there had only been one conviction under the 2016 Act, and that only resulted in a community payback order, which could just be community service. There were two more convictions, but human trafficking wasn't the main charge in either. And in Northern Ireland, an FOI to the Department of Justice found there had been between 18 and 21 prosecutions, and between 7 and 10 convictions, but they couldn't give an exact figure. Let's hear what Tamara Barnett had to say about convictions. The Modern Slave Act has a life sentence, essentially, and they've never used that on anyone. And yet one knows from the survivors anecdotally that one's dealt with that the things that are done to them are are life sentence deserving crimes. So so it's... So the systems, I mean, I, again, I know it's not just our, our sector, you know, I know in the, you know, I know we have the same issues in domestic violence, you know, that these, these sentences tend to be really painfully unjust. So I know it's, it's, it's a sector-wide issue in the criminal justice system, but certainly it's one that we see, and it is partly because the case is so complex and often because it's actually very hard to get survivors to work with the police. And that is, as I said before, down to partly lack of support and lack of options and provisions that we give to survivors to encourage them to work with us. Yeah, I think broadly we're going in the right direction. It's tiny baby steps, but each year, I'd say broadly we're going in the right direction around tackling modern slavery. Um, it feels very slow and it's very painful, particularly for the survivors caught up in the really shoddy system we have now. Modern slavery is often referred to as a hidden crime. In reality, it's often actually hidden in plain sight. That's the case with car washes, nail bars, and other exploitative environments that are trying to pass as legitimate businesses in our communities. So, what do you get when you have a hidden crime and you add to it a global pandemic? The coronavirus crisis has turned all our lives upside down. But for victims of modern slavery, it's meant their exploitation has been pushed further underground. For large chunks of the last year, fewer people have been out and about. Schools have been closed. Police officers have been concentrating on enforcing lockdowns. It's all had an impact on victims of modern slavery, but it doesn't mean the abuse has stopped. The charity Unseen UK runs a modern slavery helpline, both for victims and members of the public who think they've spotted warning signs. They say they've seen a drop in reports in some sectors and a rise in others during the pandemic. 
There have been big drops in hospitality and retail and in the beauty industries, such as nail bars. That coincided with increases in construction and agricultural settings. They've concluded that victims have been moved around from locations that have closed down at various points in the pandemic to others that have been open. I asked Unseen's CEO, Andrew Wallace, more about that. I think what we've seen is the crime is often referred to, I think, you know, if you look over the last two or three years, um, there's been a lot of focus on car washes, nail bars, and, and sort of under the sort of working title of hidden in plain sight. What the pandemic did was those people didn't suddenly stop being exploited just because those industries shut down. They will have been redeployed into other areas of exploitation and by its nature become more hidden because the public weren't out and about. Policing was, you know, has a limited amount of resource. That resource was pushed elsewhere during the COVID crisis. Uh, and what we can say is we saw a direct correlation between and if you look for it, you find it. Well, we stopped looking for it and the numbers went down, but I don't think exploitation went down. What I anticipate is as we come out of the pandemic and as we start looking for it, we'll start finding it again. Some of it will come back into those sort of traditional areas, but we also know other areas, say, like construction uh, or in the agricultural fields or in factories. Again, you know, just that enough removed from the general public and general awareness for it to become less detectable. One thing I am interested in, I suppose, is when we talk about exploited people being moved from, you know, one sector which shuts down. So, I mean, I guess we're talking about things like uh, nail bars. Um, yeah. for, for a long time throughout the last nine months, they have not been active. So is it, I'm to understand that rather than having kind of, you know, these exploiters who operate in very specialised fields, um, I'm to understand that then what you actually have is people whose who's specialised field is exploitation and they have a kind of almost like a malleable um, labour pool from which to draw from. And so they've been actually able to react to um, you know, yeah. nail bar shutting, and they've been able to move their labour, their exploited labour, to something else and, and still make money from it. Is that how kind of, that's generally how it works, is it? So, so th this is the way that I refer to, see, I think the way that we under understand modern slavery and exploitation is, is really critical. Um, mm -hmm. So it isn't as simple as, okay, we have, like you said, specialisms into nail bars and everything else. Mm -hmm. Fundamentally, what it is, is an economic crime. So if you're an exploiter, you are in a supply and demand trade and you've got a commodity to sell and exploit, that commodity is a human being. And you will just look as to where can I put that human being to exploit them in order to make money. That, that is entirely the rationale behind trafficking and modern slavery. What we also saw in, in, we've seen in nail bars is you'll see people in a forced labor situation during the day, i.e. in the nail bars, and then, of course, you want to maximize your commodity and then into forced sexual exploitation at night because that just increases your return on that commodity. It's a supply and demand trade. So they've got an endless supply of vulnerable people that they can prey upon. And then on the other end of the equation, you've got a demand for cheap goods and cheap services and cheap labor. So it's, you know, it's a perfect environment in which to do it. It's safer than doing guns and it's more profitable than doing drugs because drugs are a one hit wonder. We've also spoken to modern slavery researchers at the Wrights Lab at the University of Nottingham who have been studying how exploiters have adapted under COVID. What they've found backs up what Andrew was saying about these criminals being able to adapt their businesses to the circumstances. The academics found examples of County Lions drug gangs using Deliveroo or NHS uniforms 
to disguise their people while they are out and about. They've also been dressing up in spandex running outfits, so they look like they're just out for their daily exercise. There's also been a big push into the online world, with traffickers grooming children and young people on social media or Xbox Live chats, drawing them in with offers to make quick money by holding a package or even storing money in their bank accounts for a few weeks. We'll talk more about children and the risks slavery poses to them later. But even with these concerns about slavery being pushed further underground, there were still more than 7,500 potential victims referred into the NRM in the first nine months of 2020. That's almost 30 every single day. And the NRM is? The National Referral Mechanism. It's the government system for identifying and supporting slavery and trafficking victims. The police, councils, border force and other designated first responders can all refer victims into it. And what happens when they are referred? Well, the Home Office makes a quick initial judgement about whether they are likely a victim. If they say yes, which they did more than 90% of the time last year, that triggers a minimum period of 45 days of support, like accommodation or counselling. And what happens after that? The Home Office then has to make a final decision about whether they are a victim, but that can take years. And if they agree that they're a victim, there's another 45-day window of support. But then that's basically the NRM process over. And does everybody go into the NRM? No, adults have to give their consent. And charities say a lot of the time they might choose not to go down that route because they're afraid or anxious, especially if they don't have the right support and advice in place right away to convince them it's the right choice for them. And so it all comes back to the right support. We also know hardly anything about the victims that are referred into it. They record their nationality, age and gender when they're first referred, but when they leave, they just disappear. Here's Tamara again. I mean, data in our sector is a challenge. I mean, it's, it's sort of slowly getting better, but for example, INRM, we have no idea what happens to survivors long term. So it has, you know, we don't know. Sometimes the, it might be the same person going into the NRM multiple times, which we know happens, unfortunately, because victims often have the same vulnerabilities when they exit government support as they did before. So, of course, all the same things happen. But, yeah, there's no data to kind of analyse that. I mean, luckily, in the last year or two, they've now put it, they've made the NRM digital and, and they're dealing with really vulnerable people. Um, and, yeah, the data is not there. It's extraordinary to me, yeah, to not keep an eye on everyone that goes through the NRM. These are highly vulnerable people. From a safeguarding perspective, surely we should be keeping an eye on what's happening, that they're okay, but there's no sort of system for that. So they just disappear. These thousands just disappear into the ether after they exit, and um, it's really alarming. In recent years, we've been seeing British children making up an increasingly big chunk of NRM referrals. In that nine-month period last year, more than 3,600 children were referred. Of those, 58% were British children, the majority of which were involved in criminal exploitation, flags that experts associate with County Lines gangs. You've probably heard about County Lines gangs. You might not have heard about County Lines and slavery, though. County Lines gangs move drugs around the country, often out of cities and large towns and into less built-up areas and they're using children to do it. There are two key parts to the Modern Slavery Act. Trafficking is one, and slavery and servitude is another. In county lines, they do both. They traffic vulnerable youngsters from one area to another to deliver drugs. And they use threats, violence, forced addiction, or trap youngsters into cycles of debt to keep them under their control. The Children's Commissioner, Anne Longfield, 
told our Portsmouth reporter, Millie Salkeld, that schools, councils and police need to be more proactive and step in to keep these vulnerable kids out of gangs' clutches. Essentially, those that are looking to exploit children are looking for those who are vulnerable. They might be the child that lives in a children's home that walks home by themselves. We know there are high levels of social and emotional needs. We know that many of the children will have very fragile home environments with things like domestic violence, addiction, uh, severe mental health in the home. We know a lot of those children will have special educational needs, but also that the signs are there in terms of school instability. And one of those I've been particularly keen to look at and uh, draw attention to are those children who fall through the gaps in school, those children who are excluded from school, either temporarily or permanently, the impact of that on their vulnerability. When I talk to people who are running pupil referral units or alternative provision when children have been excluded from school, they so often tell me the high proportion of children that are there that are involved in gangs, so very often about 50%. The real at the heart of it the problem that um, I identified a couple of years ago was that no one felt it was their job to protect that child. Um, There are 15,000 referrals in a year to children's services because of children's involvement in gangs but uh, those children won't all get the support they need but we have to stop making these kids so accessible for those people who want to do them harm. So I want us all to be very vigilant about the signs of vulnerability um, and the warning signs that things are going wrong for young people, especially around that time outside school, especially around uh, any indication that things um, have changed. So, for instance, sometimes you'll get families who, you know, will find that there are extra phones in the house. The child will suddenly have a, a lump sum of money. Um, They might go missing for uh, some time. All of those are glaring warning signs. And at that point, I want that to be enough for all those who are there to protect and support children to be able to come in with a support package to help protect that child. And at the moment, so often those children don't reach the threshold of being able to get support. They won't get support from a local authority very often because they're not at immediate risk at that moment. Um, The school may not uh, feel that that's their responsibility. Um, The police will be um, uh, responding to clearly uh, their own incidents when they happen. But it's that longer term protect and prevent that I want to see in place. We're talking about the youngest child being 10 years old. And we know that the age of those that are running for gangs um, and for county lines, what used to be, you know, a 12 year old, 10 to 12 year old activity or 12 to 14 is now getting even younger. So that um, young children still at primary school are at risk of this. Most of these kids are scared stiff at this point. They've already uh, uh, got a debt bond. Um, They will uh, have already had... Um, someone trying to put a wedge between them and their family, their support system. They will already have a lot of threats of violence, not only to them, but to their family as well. And they'll be so far in, they'll be trying to get themselves out, but know that they've got themselves in that. So really difficult. They, you know, they really will face a threat of violence, if not 
death to them and their family if they give information on uh, the people that are exploiting them. The University of Nottingham's researchers we mentioned earlier were concerned about exploiters using social media to target children. They were also worried that, with schools closed, warning signs and chances to spot when children need support were being missed. That's something the children's charity Bernardo's, itself an NRM first responder, agrees with. If gangs are already preying on children who are excluded from school, Surely they must be having a field day with schools closed. Bernardo said children being out of school, combined with them feeling afraid and uncertain about COVID and their futures, provides a perfect recruitment opportunity for exploiters. They said we need to be really conscious that we may well see an increase in children being trafficked and exploited because we've been distracted by the wider health agenda and that we need to get those kids back on track with their education. We put the concerns to the Department for Education, who told us they were running an independent child trafficking guardian scheme in one third of English and Welsh councils. These provide specialised support to children vulnerable to modern slavery, and they've remained up and running throughout the pandemic. It also said it wanted to roll this out nationally. People probably do typically associate drug gangs with cities and large towns, but that's just not the case, according to Ang Longfield. People everywhere should be concerned. The county lines are now in every uh, police force around the country. So if there's anyone thinking that this is something which just happens, you know, in large cities, that absolutely isn't the case. Because what we know about the county lines, lines is that they're not only violent and ruthless, but they have an endless hungry business model whereby they want to increase their profits constantly and to increase their profits they need to extend their market which means that they extend it beyond cities beyond the larger conurbations and into towns all over the country what i'm told by the police is that business is booming in terms of the drugs industry there is a less of an emphasis on trains being the form of transport for county lines and much more of an emphasis increasingly on uh, taxis and hire cars being the way that these are delivered. But it still means that this kind of ruthless industry are using children as the commodity of choice for delivering their drugs. And they do so because um, they're less likely to be caught. The consequences of them being caught um, isn't as high. They can actually get access to them and there are plenty of vulnerable kids they can find and pick on. And also, uh, dreadfully so, that in their eyes, they're disposable. In the northwest of England, sexual exploitation is a big industry. There's cheap housing to set up brothels in, and by all accounts, a big market of potential punters. As we mentioned earlier, Lancashire Constabulary has the best slavery charge rate at almost 30%, and the force has dismantled a number of trafficking rings in recent years. In particular, Gangs sexually exploiting women. Our Northwest reporter Michael Holmes asked them why. Detective Sergeant Stu Peel from their trafficking squad told us that some officers in other forces have got it into their heads that they have to prove somebody has moved women from, say, Romania into the UK. That can be difficult. But in reality, they just need to prove they moved them from point A to point B to exploit them, from Preston to Blackburn, for instance. 
There's a lot of concern right now about the use of adult services websites, sites that host adverts for sex workers. Examples include Viva Street and Adult Work. The National Crime Agency told us the sites are a significant enabler of forced prostitution and that they're shocked whenever they find a gang of sexual exploiters not using them. Late last year, Lancashire Police dismantled a criminal gang that was moving Romanian women from Northern Town to Northern Town. They were advertising their victims for sale on Viva Street as New to Town, with one sold as Bella from Blackpool one week and Cathy in Whitehaven the next. Officers could see that the women's adverts were being updated while they were in the back of a car being moved around. So it clearly wasn't them, it was their exploiters. The National Crime Agency did also say though that the sites have some upsides. They keep sex workers off the streets and can allow them to vet their clients. But not everyone agrees. Labour MP Dame Diana Johnson has introduced a bill to Parliament which hopes to stop the likes of Viva Street by making it illegal to enable or profit from the prostitution of another person. It followed a report by a cross-party group of MPs in 2018, which said that any notion that prostitution websites introduce safety to the sex trade was a dangerous and misleading fallacy. They called for owners of such websites to be held legally accountable for the exploitation that occurs on them. Julie Bindle feminist campaigner and co-founder of law reform group Justice for Women, goes further still. She wants the rest of the UK to follow the example of Northern Ireland by adopting the so-called Swedish model, which criminalises people who pay for sex, although not prostitutes themselves. Here's what she had to say to our Northern Ireland reporter, Phil Bradfield. There is institutional ambivalence, but there's also institutional misogyny. If we're talking about trafficking into prostitution, because I know that there are a number of men, boys, that are trafficked into, um, into forced labour and the like. But if we're looking at women being trafficked into prostitution, how can you possibly attach the gravity that we should attach to that crime when we have the academics and the pro-prostitution lobbyists calling for decriminalisation of prostitution, drip-feeding the general public, which includes the police and the prosecutors and members of juries, this line that sex work is work, that the vast majority of women in prostitution want to be there. Obviously, we need to look at the way that women can be pulled into these trafficking gangs, pulled into prostitution, and it's always a lack of choice. So when people talk about women choosing uh, to be involved in so-called sex work, what they're forgetting is that to make a proper choice, you have to have other choices. This is a choice out of no choice. So yes, of course, poverty is one of the drivers into prostitution, but it's not the only one. You know, I've spoken to middle class women uh, coming from families where, you know, they're reasonably well off, where they have job opportunities and they just have the misfortune to meet a pimp. And the next thing, they're in a brothel and they're completely bound up in this horrendous life that they find it difficult to get out of. So our governments should be looking at the vulnerability of particular groups of women and some men who are definitely far more likely to be ensnared by the traffickers and the pimps than are others. It's worth noting that many sex worker associations have demonstrated against proposals to dismantle adult services websites and argue passionately about having the freedom to sell sex. But the debate about how to tackle exploitation within the sex industry is clearly far from over. So, 
Imagine you're a victim of modern slavery. You've been identified. You've managed to escape. You're looking to rebuild your life. What's your next step? Well, according to the Independent Anti-Slavery Commissioner and the government's own modern slavery strategy, it's key that victims have access to compensation, not least because it can put them less at risk of being exploited again. The UK is actually legally obligated under Council of Europe rules to make sure victims can access compensation from both their exploiter and the state. And the Council of Europe's different to the EU, isn't it? Right, the Council of Europe is a human rights organisation and our membership is totally separate to the EU, so we're still bound by the rules. So, what are the avenues for victims getting compensation in the UK? Well, one is through a government-sponsored programme for victims of violent crime, the Criminal Injuries Compensation Authority, otherwise known as SICA. We put a Freedom of Information request into SICA, asking how many modern slavery survivors had applied for compensation and how many had been successful. They told us they'd had at least 254 applications between 2015 and 2020. Although they did say that their system can't show whether the application was directly linked to the victim's trafficking experience. Of those applications, only between 24 and 56 awards were made. Northern Ireland has its own version of Seeker, which told us it had received nine applications since 2015 but had made no awards. The Modern Slavery Act also introduced something called slavery and trafficking reparation orders. These are orders that a court can make compelling an exploiter to compensate their victim. In fact, it's mandatory for courts to consider making one whenever they convict someone of slavery. And if they don't make an order, they have to explain why not. But you might be surprised to learn the government hasn't actually kept track of whether these orders are being used or not. We put in an FOI to find out but the Ministry of Justice rejected it. They said the information was held by individual courts. That's despite the government being told to start collecting that data in an independent review of the Act that it commissioned in 2019. Data from the National Crime Agency, which the Anti-Slavery Commissioner can access but the public can't, suggests court orders are made in only a fraction of convictions. Northern Ireland also created reparation orders in 2015 but an FOI to the Northern Ireland Courts and Tribunal Service showed they've never been used. The Scottish Government didn't create an equivalent because they said existing generic compensation orders could be used in slavery cases. So, is the UK meeting its legal obligations? No, says the Human Trafficking Foundation. They and other charities say Seeker just doesn't understand modern slavery and the kind of psychological injuries that victims who've experienced threats of violence, but maybe not actual violence, could have. Here's Tamara Barnett again. Do you think that we are doing enough right now to meet our legal obligations to uh, ensure that they have access to compensation? No, I mean, I, again, this is bigger than our sector, and I know it's not just our sector, but, but, but yeah, our compensation is terrible, actually. I mean, it's just really disgraceful. The system's just painful. It's really arduous and people get out the other end. Can it be, I mean, saying that, I know the survivor I worked with who recently got 20,000 from Seeker and she was really excited. It's, you know, life-changing. So, so, you know, there are some really positive stories um, as well, but there's also some really painfully unjust things. You know, these people have literally been exploited, unpaid for years and, and their futures are often really affected their chances. So, 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 yeah, the lack of justice around compensation, both the seeker side and the trafficker side, is really, really, yeah, it's really, really painful. And it, it just seems like such a core, core element. And it would so make sense 
when so much money is involved in trafficking, apart from domestic workers, it's slightly different, but sexual and labour exploitation is all about money. And yeah, it's really painful that victims never see that, that money really come back to them, even when they sort of get identified. Modern slavery in the UK impacts a lot of different people. It impacts all of us indirectly. But generally speaking, specific groups of people are more at risk of becoming victims. It stands to reason that the more vulnerable people are generally, the more likely they are to turn to more potentially risky ways of making ends meet or surviving. Or they might be less able to recognise that they are being exploited. Migrants are particularly at risk of exploitation and trafficking, but this doesn't necessarily impact all migrants equally. Poorer migrants, some of whom may have insecure immigration status, or be in the process of making asylum claims, are much more at risk than relatively wealthier or settled migrants. Human trafficking is a major aspect of modern slavery. As we mentioned earlier, it tends to involve the trafficking of people across borders, although it can happen within countries too. The government has been keen to talk tough on human trafficking, particularly in reference to migrants making their way to the UK across the Channel via small boat crossings. But our investigation found that in practice, the government is potentially missing thousands of opportunities to identify and investigate instances of modern slavery. When migrants who've made small boat crossings, or who've arrived in the UK inside or underneath a lorry, are picked up by the authorities, they are taken first to migrant processing centres, then to detention centres. While they're being processed, Home Office staff are supposed to interview them to find out about their journeys to the UK. A big part of the reason they do this is to identify potential victims of modern slavery. But a number of reports by the Prisons Inspectorate found that Home Office staff aren't carrying out these interviews properly, with the end result being that many victims are being missed. And to go back to the NRM, which we mentioned earlier, the Inspectorate found that during a period when more than 2,000 migrants passed through processing facilities, Home Office staff made no referrals. We should be clear, not everyone who travels to the UK in these ways is a victim of modern slavery. Experts have differing opinions on how many are likely to be, though most agree that a substantial number have likely suffered forms of severe exploitation on their way to the UK, and will suffer it once they're here. But the reality is, we don't know. And part of the reason for that, at the moment, is that the Home Office isn't doing enough to find out. And it isn't just modern slavery campaigners who are worried about this. In a High Court case brought by two potential victims of modern slavery last year, Justice Fordham remarked that, in his view, it could be unlawful for the Home Office to fail to ask these questions. Justice Fordham also said there's a serious risk of injustice and irreversible harm from the relevant questions going unasked. At the start of this episode, we asked you what you thought about when you heard the word slavery. Your answer then might not have been the UK, but maybe your opinion has changed. Modern slavery in the UK has many faces. Drugs, sex, hospitality, retail, agriculture, garment factories, car washes, Turkish barbers, domestic workers. Exploitation is all around us. We all have a role to play in tackling modern slavery, whether that's knowing what the warning signs to look out for are, 
or thinking twice about how we add to the demand for cheap goods and services. But modern slavery is bigger than any one of us. And clearly the system we have now is struggling to rid this evil from our communities. The Modern Slavery Act was a start, but surely we can now do more. That's why we're calling on the Home Affairs Select Committee to resume an inquiry into modern slavery that it abandoned before the 2019 general election. Four leading charities have joined our call. Will you add your voice too? Use the hashtag an unbroken chain on social media. You can also read more on our investigation in your local JPI Media newspaper. Thank you for listening. And if you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to rate and subscribe. Uncovered is a laudable production and is available on all your major podcasting platforms. Uncovered is presented by me, Harriet Cogston, and Ethan Schoen, and produced by Morvin McIntyre.